You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. That song gets you fired up, won't it? Welcome to Kingsway. It's Labor Day weekend. So for anybody watching online, perhaps right now or down the road, thank you for still tuning in. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, let me just tell you quickly where we've been and where we're going. So there's a chapter in the Bible called Hebrews 11, and it comes almost at the very end of the Bible. In fact, some estimate exactly when it was written, but maybe around 60 to 70 AD, probably somewhere in that ballpark. So you can get where we are a little bit in history because that chapter refers to these heroes of the faith. And the first half of that chapter goes to the book of Genesis. What we're doing is taking the outline of that chapter, and we're walking through the book of Genesis through that outline. And that's important because today we're skipping chapters because they're not in Hebrews 11, not because they're not important. So I will do my best to fill in those gaps very, very quickly, but you may have questions you want to go dig into based off something I said. And that's part of my hope is that I can whet your appetite, make you hungry and thirsty for more, and you'll go look into some, some, some things. And I just want to warn you, Google is not always your best friend when it comes to Bible study. So... I'll tell you by the end of this where to get better information, all right? Here we go. First thing I want to show you is a picture. This picture, <coughs> excuse me, this picture is famously called, if we could put it up here on the big screen for just a second so you can get a good view of it, it's famously called Checkmate. And what we have going on here is this character over here is supposed to be Satan. I don't know if you can see the little black spider, just to tell you how eerie this is, because everybody hates spiders, except for Satan. And um, just kidding. And over here you have a man who is playing chess for his eternity. And he's lost. He's in checkmate. Checkmate, in case you don't know anything about chess, is the moment where the king has no more moves. He's lost. Not super important for today's message because what we've seen throughout the book of Genesis is it looks just like that. It looked like when Satan got Adam and Eve to eat the fruit they weren't supposed to eat, it looked like Satan had won again. Then it looked last week, like we talked about in the flood, Satan had finally got things all crazy. God grieved he ever made mankind, and so he sent a flood. And after the flood, we've got this one family, eight in all, and they're about to start everything all over again. And all the promises of blessing that came in Genesis 2 and 3 were passed on now to Noah and his family. And it looks like everything is going great, but at the end of Noah's story, we did talk about this last week, Noah's son commits a significant sin, <clears throat> and then we find ourselves in a different moment in chapter 11. I'm sorry, I'd say that right? I think that's right. And in chapter 11, things start to kick off with a change of pace. All of a sudden, the entire world is unified again against God. And that's important because what we're going to see throughout today is there is one game-changing thing in all of our stories, and that one thing is faith. And that's why Hebrews 11 says, verse 6, without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. Because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And that's the question for all of us. Do I have faith? When we get to Genesis chapter 11 now, what we find is all of the people of the earth are rallied against God. In fact, they're building what we might call, if you remember history class, a ziggurat. It's this tower that kind of goes up and it gets up to heaven. Oftentimes when you see this in picture rendishing, renditionings, that's a new word I'm going to make up for this week. Renditions. I don't even know what I'm trying to say anymore. Renditions. That's the word. 
What you'll want to see is something that looks like the Tower of Pisa, except for it's not leaning. That's probably not exactly what was being built. It's probably something like Isigrat, this plateau thing that climbs up, except for the problem is the motive behind it. Take a look at Genesis 11, verse 1 and 2. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. This is a foundational setup that I wanted to touch on briefly just to say it and move on. But what we find is in the garden, everybody walked with God in the cool of the day, had a relationship with God, and it says they were naked and had no shame. And that was a powerful statement about the way they felt safe on the planet with God and with each other. But after sin comes and God removes them from the garden, what you'll see consistently in the book of Genesis, start reading it with these eyes, is this idea of eastward. And do you know what was east of the promised land? Babylon. And if you don't know anything about the Bible story, if you just look at the Bible arc from Genesis to Revelation, we see the saying of Babylon over and over and over again. There was a literal place called Babylon at one point, and that's where really bad things came. Really bad things in the Israelite people. Really bad things. So much so that in the end, in the book of Revelation, it refers to Babylon, metaphorically speaking, figuratively speaking, as this evil presence on the face of the earth that leads people away from God. But what we see from Genesis chapter 2, moving throughout the story, is people keep moving east toward Babylon, east toward Babylon, east toward Babylon. They're getting further from God, further from God, further from God. And so now we have people moving east again, and they're settling there. And in verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And what's happening here? This is where the Bible is so good at saying so much at such a little space. What's happening here is the people of the earth do not want God to be their ruler. They do not want God to be their leader. So they're going to build a building that reaches up into the heavens because the belief, the thinking in the day is he's up there. Do you remember when you were a little kid? Like, where is heaven? It's up there, like through the clouds, right? Just like hell is down there below the ground. But if you keep digging down there, you're just going to end up on the other side of the world. We all know that. But then this idea is if we could just build a building and get up there, we can overthrow heaven. That's what's happening here. And this is a problem. So God comes down and he walks among them. He's like, let's go see what's really going on there. And God goes, wow, these people are unified. That's good. These people are unified against us. That's bad. And it's just like Genesis chapter 6. We don't have to talk about this, but there is more than one catastrophic fallout in the book of Genesis. It's not just the garden. It's the flood, but it's not just the flood. It's Babel. And the problem here is that people are unified against God. And I'm good. God could have said, let's just destroy them all. Let's just wipe them out. I'm tired of it. But he can't use a flood this time. So he's got to come up with some new method, right? But instead of wiping everybody out, instead of destroying everybody because sin is winning the day again, God decides to confuse their language. So one day they all wake up, and, and we don't know what languages they spoke then. But one day they all wake up, and one guy is speaking French, and he's like, huh, let's do this to the building. If, you, if you're French, forgive me. I have, I have no idea how to speak French. And parlez-vous français. And then the Spanish person, I'm, like, I'm going to get a lot of trouble if I keep trying to go down that road, right? But then the Spanish guy goes, what are you saying? Why are you not talking to me the same way you did yesterday? And the Greek guy goes, wait a minute. What are you guys talking about over there? I don't understand what you guys are saying at all. And the Hebrew guy, same thing, and then so on and so on and so on. 
And so the work stopped, and everybody spread out in their groups based off their language. Now, you think about it, this explains so many things in the world that we don't have time to go into today. As people spread all over the earth based off their language and their clans, and all of a sudden, we have these different nations in different parts of the world. But what really is going on is God is the one who did it. And why did he do it? He did it to disunify them in their evil in hopes to bring them back to good. In fact, in each colossal failure in the book of Genesis, really throughout the Bible, we see the faithfulness of God. And that is super important for our stories and where we need to go next. Because God could have quit. He could have given up. He could have punished everybody. But he didn't because that's not who he is. And as people spread throughout the world, they became disunified. And here's the thing. This is where we need to go. We're going we're to study the book of Acts, the later half of next year. But I'm just going to give you a little, little, little snippet, a little trailer, a little teaser. This is exactly what the church is supposed to be undoing. The church is supposed to be the place where the people come back together, but this time not to build a tower to overthrow heaven, but to come underneath the rule of heaven and become one so that every tribe in tongue, in language, in nation unifies in a group and says, look, I don't look like you look. I don't think like you think. I don't even necessarily speak the language you speak, but I am on your team unified under the rule and the reign of God. Imagine for a second, what would happen in the world if all of the space agencies of the world worked together on one project? Imagine Elon Musk and Bezos and the ESA and, the, and NASA and the Soviet space and the Chinese space entities and all of them. Imagine them get together and together, whatever they would take on. Could anybody stop them? No. Imagine all the world governments saying, we're going to take on this problem together. And that's what the church is supposed to be. A place where together we say, we can do it. There's no problem so big that our God can't solve it. And he intends and desires to use us to do it. And so we're going to rally together. We're going to unify together. We're going to take on this massive issue. And together, through the power of God in us, we're going to get it done. And we're unified under his rule and reign. It's exactly what's happening in the book of Acts. Chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and the apostles stand up on the day of Pentecost and they start speaking, and however exactly it happens, we'll go through it next year, they start speaking in all these tongues, languages of all the nations. And other people are there and they're like, wait, 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 wait. How does he know my language? How does he know how to speak to me? And people start hypothesizing, well, they're just a bunch of drunk guys. And Peter's like, we can't be drunk. It's only like 11 in the morning. I can't remember exactly what time he says. Like, everybody's like, oh, yeah, that didn't make sense, right? Nobody gets drunk by 11. They obviously hadn't been in America. But the point then was nobody drinks this early in the morning. Clearly, they're not just rambling and babbling. There's something going on here. And what God is doing is he's undoing Babel in Acts chapter 2. And it's so powerful because that's what he wants to do in us still today. See, God is chasing you in spite of your failure. Did you know that? That's why I love the passage of James. I keep saying it, so forgive me. I'm just going to keep repeating it until God takes it off my heart. But when you need wisdom, ask God for it, and he'll give it to you without finding fault. God isn't looking to point fingers. 
He just wants to help because he wants to do things in the world. He's active right here, right now in this room. So before we go any further and jump into Abraham's story, let's just go ahead and say a quick prayer and invite him to speak. Let's do that. Ready? Heavenly Father, I'm going to be short and to the point. We need you. We need to hear from you. And I believe you want to speak. And so God, some of us in the room, because of our own lack of trust, we don't know how to hear your voice. So God, would you just speak right now and then confirm what you said and then give us the boldness to obey. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 12 begins with the new thing that God is doing to win humanity back to himself. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord has said to Abram, now you need to know because we're not going to have time to cover this. We're going to cover Abraham and Sarah for the next two Sundays after this, so three total Sundays. You could easily spend months on Abraham. We're not. We're not going to have time to do that. So Abram later becomes Abraham. His wife, Sarai, later becomes Sarah. I may slip and refer to them depending on where you are in the story synonymously. You just need to know it's because I've messed up a slip, but that's the same person. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Emphasis, to the land I will show you. So part of this go from, he's telling him, I want you to leave your people, leave your family, and go to a place you don't know about yet. Does that sound terrifying to anybody? Now, some of you, like the extreme, you know, adventure, entrepreneur in the room, whatever it is, like, you're like, yeah, let's go. When do we go? But for a lot of us, this freaks us out. It freaks us out. So what Abraham is going to do is he's going to take his wife, Sarah. He's going to take the people who work for him, and they're going to go. Go where? They don't know yet. Wherever God shows them, whenever God shows them, that's where they will go. And it leaves this question that we all wrestle with. Can I trust an unknown future to a known God? When it says the Lord said to Abraham, how did he say it? Did he show up? Was it a thought in his head? Was it conviction in his heart? Did he see it written in the sky? Was there an audible voice? And the answer is, we don't know. Abraham is the one who let us know this is what happened. Probably Genesis got written down by Moses on top of the mountain when he went up to meet with God and God said, this is what happened. Did Moses go, how did you speak to him? I don't know. Moses sitting there talking to God. Maybe he's like, it was probably a lot like this. I don't know. But Abraham is convinced he heard from God and he listens and he obeys. Why? Because he's willing to trust an unknown future to a known God. And this is where we tend to struggle because we love control. I have a friend who's terrified of flying, and he'll be honest with you. He would much rather drive, and the reason he would rather drive is because there's the facade of control, right? There's that belief that at least I'm the one holding the wheel and pushing the gas, as if that would stop anything if a person loses control of their car and comes right at me. But there's at least the idea that I'm in control. But when I'm sitting on a plane, like, what if that guy's had too much to drink? What if that gal didn't sleep last night? What if, and we don't feel in control. And part of what God is going to do in Abraham is what he wants to do in us is he wants to get us to surrender control to him so that we can each and every day and each and every moment just trust and faithfully respond to whatever it is he's telling us to do whenever it is he tells us to do it, no matter how crazy it sounds. In fact, it goes on in verse two, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. We actually went through this passage a little bit. I think it was December of last year. We did a series called Hashtag Blessed, and I don't have time to unpack all of this, but this is the very blessing that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 3, was then passed to Noah, and is now being passed to Abraham. What's crazy about the story, if you dig into the details, is Abraham is not a great man of God. Abraham, you can track his family line. Yeah, he comes from the Seth line, but he lives in a people who are against God. He's probably strongly influenced by the little g false gods of the people around him. He's probably in some way very confused about exactly who God is. But when God showed up to him and said, follow me, trust me, I'm going to do something, Abraham said, okay, I believe you. And this is important because it's following on the Tower of Babel moment. When God is frustrated again, the people are unified against him. But his story of reconciliation, I'm going to one day bring all things back together under my name, but I'm going to start with this man. And everything hinges on this one man trusting God to be faithful. And it makes me wonder, how much is hinging on each us being faithful, taking God at his word, being obedient, following him wherever he tells us to go, whenever he tells us to go, no matter the cost. When God tells him, I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham has no children. He's 75 years old. Now, people lived longer back then than they do today. So I don't know how to calculate the math. Like, is 75 the new 50? Like, I don't know. I don't know how to calculate that. But he's definitely older along in years, and that's extremely relevant in the story. Here's why. Because while we pick up Abraham's story in chapter 12, it concludes somewhere in the early 20s. Like 10 chapters later, we get like seven, eight major stories of Abraham's life in this 10-chapter time frame. But it takes about 20 years of literal time. Do you think there were more than seven or eight moments in Abraham's life over that 20-year span? I mean, just think back over the last 20 years, if you have 20 of those to think back over. Have there not been major moments that have happened over and over and over and over and over again? Of course there have. It's not that God wasn't moving in any of them. We're being told the big picture stuff, and what we see consistently, and I hope to show you some of this over the next couple weeks, is the rise and fall of Abraham. As he's tested again around, you'd be surprised how many times that happens around a tree. It's not an accident in the book of Genesis because it's taking you back to the Genesis 2 and 3 story. The whole idea is he's being tested with, will you trust me? Will you let me handle life? Or will you take matters into your own hands? And over and over and over again, Abraham takes matters into his own hands. He will not yet trust God fully until the end of his story. And finally, at the end of his story, God says, give me your one and only son. And Abraham says, okay. And we're told that Abraham real, rationalized with himself. Somehow God is going to give him back to me. But don't you feel like that, honestly? Maybe you gave your life to Jesus at 12 or 13, or maybe it was 15 or 18. Maybe it was this year. But hasn't it been a journey over long periods of time, sometimes feeling very strong and faithful, and other times feeling weak and tempted? 
And even when you fail and even in your struggle and even on your worst days, God has remained faithful because the trajectory of your life is that God is leading you somewhere. Verse 4, so Abram went out as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. This little verse is so important because, remember, God told him to leave your what? Family. Lot, if you just go back and read the chapters beforehand, Lot is his nephew. So Abraham has obeyed, but he didn't obey fully. And if you read stories we don't have time to get into, this decision by Abraham causes a lot of pain in his life. In fact, the story you may have heard referenced before of Sodom and Gomorrah, the whole reason it's relevant in the story is because it involves Lot. And there came a point in the relationship where they're in the land that God has not yet given to them. And Abraham says, Lot, their, their, their families, actually Abraham doesn't have a family, but they're his workers and their family and workers are fighting against each other. And Abraham's like, this is crazy. I love you. I don't want to lose a relationship with you. You look around. You pick which part of the land you want to go to and I'll go the opposite direction. And that was never God's call for Abraham. And if, God, if Abraham had not taken Lot with him, it would have been a completely different story. But God still got done everything God had planned and purposed to get done. And this is the tension we all feel in Scripture. God gives us the power to make everyday decisions. Those decisions have real impact, but ultimately we can never thwart the plans of God. And I once heard it used as like a ship that leaves New York and is headed to London. And on that cruise ship, you may make any number of decisions, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to do that day, but the ship is still going to London. And that's like the best analogy I know how to give you. You're never going to stop or thwart the ultimate plan of God, but boy, you can cause yourself and others some pain along the way. But God is still faithful. Look at verse 5. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, that's super important because what Hebrews 11, the chapter we're using to describe all this for us, what Hebrews 11 says about him is this, verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Obeyed and went? I mean, yeah, kind of. I mean, like, he mostly obeyed, but he was told not to take Lot. He was told to leave his family behind. We don't know why Abraham made this decision. If you were to read back earlier in Genesis, like chapter 10, I think it is, you would find that Lot's dad died. Perhaps Abraham and Lot became business partners, and Abraham couldn't find a solution to separate it, so his thought was, I'll bring Lot with me. That'll be the best way to solve the problem. Perhaps Abraham took on a father figure role in Lot's life, and when God told him to leave, it was like, he couldn't mean that because I played such a significant role in a father figure kind of community. Or maybe he just loved Lot because it was his nephew, and he hurt for him, and he thought, man, there's something about God. He's speaking to me that's different than what I'm seeing, and I don't want Lot to be influenced negatively. And the point is, it's not that any of those desires in Abraham's heart could be bad desires, but when God calls us to be faithful, we have to stop trying to make sense of it. Obedience is the most important next step, even when we can't make it add up. Look at the next verse. By faith, he, this is Abraham, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. 
Oh man, have you ever thought about this for a second? So if you don't know Bible history, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham's the dad, Isaac is the son, Jacob is one of two sons, the two sons of Isaac, and then Jacob goes on and has 12 sons, the tribes of Israel. So basically what this text is saying, don't miss it, Abraham's choice was for a generation he'd never see. He was believing that God was going to do something many years down the road through his faithful decision today. See, today when you choose to follow God, when you choose to be obedient, even when it doesn't make sense to you, you might be leaving a legacy for generations to come that you've never met. But your lack of obedience, your lack of faith, your lack of trust, your lack of taking the next step could also leave a legacy for generations to come. What if we were to be a people who said, I don't have all the answers, I don't know how to make it all make sense, but I am convicted that God is telling me to do this, so therefore I will go. Because here's the thing, we can all become like Abraham through faith. Through faith. This is exactly what Paul's trying to get to in Galatians, though. If I had more time, at some point I did the series in Galatians probably eight years ago. Maybe we'll do it again someday. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, so again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Do you get what Paul's just saying? The Spirit of God is doing crazy, amazing things among you, not because of how good you perform. The Spirit of God is doing these things because you trust him and you love him and you follow him. You're never going to see the work of God just by following a list of rules. What you will find is when you connect with the heart of God, God's heart connects with you. There's a passage in the Bible that says, God will give you the desires of your heart. But that is only true in context. And the context is when your heart is connected with God's heart, then he wants to do things through you and flow things through you so that you become blessed to be a blessing. It's not, God, give me more. Give me a bigger house. Give me more money. Give me better cars. Give me nicer clothes. Give me fancy vacations. Look how blessed I am. It's, God, connect my heart to your heart. Open my eyes that I can see what's going on in the world, that I can connect with you and what you're doing so that you can give me the desires of my heart. My heart is to see your name made great. I don't want to build a city for myself. I don't want to make a name for me. I want to make your name great among the nations. So, God, how do I get that? Yeah. I just read an article. This is like just coming to me right now. So you always get a little lecture for your money at the 11 o'clock service, just, you know, to promote the 11 for you. I just read an article this week, and the gospel is dying in places like America where wealth is increasing, but it is thriving in places like refugee camps all across Africa and in the poorest places of places like China and India. There is something about the gospel that as soon as I make it about getting and not about giving, it loses its power. And I don't always know what to do with that. But what Jesus said to Peter, follow me, I'm gonna make you a fisher of men. There's something in everything that comes next. Something in everything that comes next. And that same something is real for us today. 
The question for us is, will we respond faithfully to God's call? There is a huge difference between a job and a call. There are days when ministry is hard. And I spend my nights asking God, is this just a job? Can I quit now? And he says, no. This is a call. Don't get me wrong. You don't need to send me an encouraging note. I'm in a fantastic place right now. But I don't know if you know this or not, everything you do in life could be hard. Being a dad could be hard. Being a mom could be hard. Being a spouse married to me could be hard. My poor wife. Your job is hard. Being a teacher. So many teachers are quitting. It's hard. Being a business owner, it's hard. It's hard. But see, when you're called by God, it just has a different sense of responsibility to it. I've got to be faithful to the call. What is God calling you to? Is God calling you to reconcile with a neighbor or family member where it's broken? Is God calling you to forgive something you've never wanted to forgive? Is God calling you to pursue something you never wanted to pursue because you just wanted to move on and be done with it? Is God calling you to repent of a sin that you'd rather keep hidden in darkness? Is God calling you to be generous beyond what you want to do and maybe not buy that next thing you were thinking about buying so that you could partner with him and what he's doing in the world? Is God calling you out of your isolation into perhaps even just joining community in this church? Is God calling you to give up a couple hours on a Sunday to serve and say, you know what? Other people have given to me and my family. Maybe it's time for me to give to others and their family. Is God calling you to share your faith with somebody that you work with and you know it? He keeps telling you, just ask them to lunch, but you're afraid. And like, this could go so many different ways. So let me just, real quick, how would I know if God was calling me? Well, isn't that the magic question? How did God call Abraham? It just says the Lord said. This is Matt Nickerson speaking, and look, I could be wrong. In 10 years from now, I might tell you otherwise because I don't think the Bible is 100% clear on this. The Bible seems to trust that the Holy Spirit in you will speak. So here's, it's a very simple three-part process, but it's very difficult to work out in everyday life. Ready? Listen to God, and then just do what he says, and trust that he's with you. Like a 30, 40-minute devotion with the staff, and I'm gonna do a a three-minute thing here, right? So you're getting the shorter version. But if you just take a listen for a second, how do I listen to God? Well, the first thing you ought to do is you ought to jump into his word. And if you don't know what it says, you need to keep coming on a Sunday. That's why you can't be here every four or five weeks and think you're going to get enough of it. You aren't going to get enough of it. There's too much of it to give you in one Sunday. That's why you need to get connected at a small group where we're open up the word of God and figure out how to apply it to our lives. At least what we learn now, you got to get in there and start listening. Because anything that's clearly revealed, we have to act on. Like, for instance, I've had people ask me, Like they're miserable in their marriage and they met somebody else and it's really fun and exciting and they think like, could God possibly be telling me that I married the wrong person? To the answer is, it doesn't really matter. God would never tell you that. The word reveals that you made a commitment, you made a promise until death do us part. So if they leave you, that's a different scenario. If an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse, that's different. Paul clarifies that. But otherwise, it's till death do us part. You're in it to win it to the very end. So let's stop worrying about that other thing over there and get in here and start fixing it. Get in here and start putting time and effort into it. It's revealed. Should I share my faith with this person? I don't even have to ask that question. The answer is always yes. But what if they don't like me? 
Guess what happened to all the people in the Bible when they shared their faith with people? They weren't liked. But God revealed it. I don't have to pray and fast and wonder. Like, be bold, my man. Come on. But then when things aren't clear and they aren't revealed, what do I do? Well, for one, I need to get on my knees. I need to start praying. Like, God, what are you doing here? What do you want to do in me? And then what I do is I take it to the body of Christ and I ask for confirmation. I feel like God may be telling me to do this. Do you see this in me? Do you have any wisdom for me? And the Bible says, in the counsel of many, there is wisdom, right? Plans succeed because of the counsel of many. Well, what's many? I know this, it's not one. So you can't go to your best friend who tells you everything you want to hear and say, hey, um, you think I should do this? I'm like, yeah, you got it. You need to go to somebody else. You know, maybe that question asker, that naysayer, that person who's always asking you how it's going to get done that just drives you bonkers because you got a dream and an idea. You need to go to them and just test it. Say, do you see God doing this? Hey, I need to pray about that. See, that all happens in community and the body of Christ where we're coming back together under the rule and the reign of God. And this is why you got to connect with other believers in this church because you need other people looking at you and saying, yes, I see that. I sense that. How can I help? How can I help you accomplish the dream that God has put in your heart? Can I pray for you? Can I support you? Can I come alongside you? What do you need to get the job done? Think about this. Hebrews 3 says this. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. Okay, what day is called today? Come on now, I know it's silly. You're like, come on, pastor, don't talk down to us. I'm not trying to talk down to you. Hebrews said it because as long as it's today, do this. And every day is called today. Tomorrow, when tomorrow arrives, we'll do it again today. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Just hang on to that for a second. This original conviction that Jesus is Lord and he wants to lead us and he wants to save us, he wants to redeem us. we got to hold on to that to the very end. We can never lose sight of that. That's why we need community because the world is hard and sin is deceitful and it'll lead you to dark and dangerous places and you need people in your life that you could be open and honest with and they can look at you and say, stop, you've gone too far, turn back. And you go, you're right, I need that. Real quick, can I ask our slide person to put back up the picture from the beginning? This picture called Checkmate. One day there was a chess master and he was walking through the museum where it was being displayed and uh, it was dinner time. So most of the people had, that he had traveled with, his host, were, had traveled out and they were going to dinner and he stopped and he studied it. And he looked at the group that was still gathered there with him and he said, this shouldn't be called checkmate. The king has one more move. And everybody argued with him and said, no, he didn't. He said, let's set the table right now. I guarantee you I'll win. They set the table, and every single person there, as people gathered, they started to play against him, and he kept winning, and he kept winning, and he kept winning. Because when it looked like the king had no more moves, the king had one more move. And our king has one more move, too. And it has to do with our trusting him. No matter what, will you trust Go back to the very end of Hebrews 3 there. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The writer of Hebrews is pointing back to Exodus 
And he's saying, remember when God wanted to lead you out of Egypt, out of slavery and into the promised land? And remember when you hardened your heart, you wouldn't, remember when you wouldn't hear, you wouldn't receive, you wouldn't listen, you remember that? You remember that? Don't be like that. Soften your heart. Receive his voice and respond faithfully to whatever he's telling you to do. What I want to do now is send you into communion and I just want you to listen to God's voice. And I'll start a prayer and I'll just hand it to you. And then whatever he tells you to do, let's be a people who do it. Ready? Let's pray. Father, would you come and meet us right here, right now? God, I believe you're here in this place and I believe you desire to speak and I desire you, you want to, to speak to us. So God, whatever, whatever our thought next is, God, would you let it be from you? And if there's some sin in our life we gotta deal with, would you give us the courage to deal with it and not shrink back? And God, if we're not connected in community, God, would you let that be our conviction? But God, some of us need marching orders. God, where are you telling us to change? Where are you telling us to seek and pursue? Not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of burden, but because your voice is calling and drawing. The love of our Father is saying, trust me. For generations to come, I'm about to do something amazing, but you've got to trust me. God, help us. Help us in our unbelief. Help us where we're doubting. Help us where we're insecure and afraid and we don't see how it's going to work. God, help us to trust We ask this in Jesus' name.